Hi everyone, this is Roman with Holistic Dog Training. And today my special guest in our Coffee with Dog Professional is Dr. Katrin Jan. I know it sounds very German, right? Um, she's a veterinary behaviorist. And while we're having a coffee, well, I will have a coffee because there where Katrin lives is actually Dubai, which is late in the afternoon. We will discuss um, how some behavior problems are caused totally or partially by a medical condition. Additionally, some of them problems represent a diagnostic challenge for veterinarians because in many cases, apart from behavior changes, there are no other clinical signs or evidence of illness. Improving our knowledge of the most common medical problems that can modify behavior may help veterinarians and us as pet lovers to help improve our dog's life and of course, their behaviors. So welcome, Dr. Karin Yan. I'm super excited about meeting you today. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really excited um, for our conversation. I think it's going to be a good one. There's a oh. lot to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> so um, let's go straight to the bone. What are you doing in Dubai? I mean, Dubai is a great area. I mean, I've seen a lot of things. I've heard a lot of things. Um, what do you do exactly there? So um, I'm actually in Abu Dhabi, um, but it's close, Dhabi. Enough to, yeah, it's close enough to Dubai, close enough to Dubai. Um, so I work here as a veterinarian. So I own and run my own small animal practice here. I came to the UAE in 2006. So I've been here quite a few years and I opened my own practice in 2008. Um, and in that time of having my own practice, I realized that we as vets are really good at taking care of the physical health of our pets but we're not so great at taking care of the mental and emotional health of our pets. Um, and so in 2019, um, I actually embarked on a residency in veterinary behavior medicine um, through both the European and the American colleges of veterinary behavior. And yeah, that's what I'm doing. So I see mainly clinical behavior cases um, and I still do a, a little bit of work in my practice, but that's mainly now takes the shape of working up medically my behavior cases. So that's a little bit where the kind of the crossover comes between the, the medical and the behavioral, I guess. Yeah, people, I, I feel this is a great topic and I love it. And, and I love that you open about talking about these things. Um, people see behavior just a behavior thing. A bad dog does bad things. And then usually in US, I don't know how it's in Germany, um, then people go to the veterinarian complaining about the dog's behavior and the behaviorist or the veterinarian op opens up a book and reads which one medication he should prescribe and gives them a package and send them home. Good luck with that. Um, sometimes in, in good cases, a veterinary behaviorist will sit down and discuss a treatment plan, but that is not usually in conjunction with a broader band of training exercises and support in the house. Um, what do you see on, on from your perspective, being basically international veterinarian? What what do you see out there is going on in general with behaviors and the veterinary community? How does these things work together? Yeah, that's a great question. So the one thing I think we have to kind of talk about is that as veterinarians, we don't get a lot of training in behavior. Um, so I graduated from Munich. 20 something years ago now. Um, and we were pretty lucky that we did actually have a faculty, um, a behavior faculty within our veterinary faculty. But I think that's one of the very few universities, certainly in Europe, 
I know that still in the UK, um, you know, not all of the universities have a behavior um, training. In the US, it's starting to get a little bit better, I think. But, you know, we're sorely lacking as vets in training in behavior. Um, and also behavior, it's a complex topic and it takes up quite a bit of time. So when we see a patient in general practice, we usually have like 15 or 20 minutes to see them. And there's no way that you can kind of start to touch on behavior in that time. So the way I work, I guess, is a little bit different. So I actually have a, a trainer, an in-house trainer who works with me, and we work all of our cases together because I saw exactly the same thing, right? I started um, seeing behavior cases and I could help a lot in the, the medical diagnosis, in you know getting some management in place, in educating the owners, body language, all that kind of thing. But the practical hand-holding in the home, that was just something that was a little bit um, difficult for me to do. So we work now, two of us, um, you know, we, we work the cases together. We set the treatment plans together. I do kind of my part. And then Ilsa does her part, which is a lot of the, the practical implementation and management, you know, therapy exercises, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Wishful thinking on my side. <laughs> I, I do have a couple of veterinarians who work together, but it's always this clear thing. There's no overlapping. It's, it's similar with engineering. You have the electrical engineers, the mechanical engineers. They're not communicating. There's no communication level. It's just pushing around the responsibilities at the end. But I like, I like that you have actually a trainer on staff, yeah. which is great because... You have this, and I like also your concept of Trinity veterinary behavior. It's kind of like a nice triangle, client, uh, health, and and um, behavior all in one in one shot. It's, this is a great approach. Also, one something that I noticed going through your website, you also have a fear-free certified. Can you kind of give us a little bit of a hint there? I, I know, but you know, some people like fear-free yeah. veterinarian. I thought they are, no? Yeah, yeah, no. Uh, yeah, no, that's not true. Not all veterinarians are fear free. Um, so fear free is a movement that started in the US, actually, I guess, probably about, I guess, somewhere between five and 10 years ago now. Um, and it's really the idea that we have to take more responsibility as veterinarians to make our patients comfortable within the clinic, within the hospital, when they're being treated. And we really have to recognize stress. And I think for me, like when I'm speaking to other vets, I, you know, I think a lot of vets have this idea that being fear free is this kind of fluffy approach. You know, it's it, it's not a particularly scientific approach, maybe. But when I speak to vets, I actually tell them, guys, your patient outcome and case outcome is going to be so much influenced by your patient stress levels. You know, the type of clinical examination you're going to be able to do is going to be influenced by stress levels blood values that you collect are going to be influenced by stress levels. So there are so many reasons why we should consider being or taking a more fear-free approach. The CAT um, equivalent to that is the CAT-friendly clinic um, approach. Um, but in, in dogs, yeah, we, we have fear-free. In fact, we've got a dog-friendly clinic scheme that's just been launched in, in the UK as well. So we're kind of heading more in that direction, but it's, it's really kind of twofold. It's influencing patient outcome by reducing stress levels. So dealing with the animal as a whole, treating the animal as a whole, um, but also making that animal's experience in the clinic different. And there are like 
a million ways in which you can influence that right from the front of house team, you know, through to the veterinary team. Everybody has their part to play in that. And we honestly, since we've been working in this way, it's completely changed the way that we do everything, really, to be honest. You know, it's kind of the ethos with which the, the practice is run now. Right, right. I'm, I notice when I start going with the vets with my dogs, their practices were really complicated. Um, I usually work with dogs over 100 pounds, so there's no problem me showing up with 120, 160 pound dog. And of course, people get overwhelmed. And I says, well, let me help you. No, 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 no. You have to stay behind these closed doors because we have to deal with it. I was like, you will not be able to deal with it. Like, no, no, we know how. And then yeah. they're struggling. The dogs are barking and yelling and screaming and people are yelling and screaming. And then at some point they come out, says, okay, come inside, help us out. <laughs> yeah. The whole approach is totally inhumane. Yeah. Okay. Having a dog on a choke collar on the table, somebody's yanking the leg back, stretching to take blood, but the dog is struggling on survival mode. That dog gets nuts. They're causing trauma. Yeah. And I think yeah. it's a great, I think Dr. Goldstein started the whole concept with fear free and said, you know, that thing has to stop. Yeah. I mean, I know better dog people who go to the vet and their dog is traumatized from day one going to the vet. And from then it's just declining fear of people, fear of other animals, fear of confined places. The dog doesn't have afraid of going in the car. Yeah. And we don't yeah. see that. This, all these things are part of this complex thing that we say behavior. And at the same time, we need to help the veterinarian by proactively working with our dogs, creating this synergistic work how do i prepare my dog to visit the vet because you will not be able to do blood work if the dog is so stressed you don't get any clear indication of exactly what's going on right yeah no, absolutely. how do you deal with that yeah absolutely i mean it, you know number one so one of our big um things is that we have the the pet parent or the pet owner present whenever we can thank if, you yeah welcome <laughs> It brings such a level of comfort to, to the animal, especially dogs. Um, cats, as we know, can be a little bit different, but even cats sometimes, you know, are much happier, um, you know, with their person there. Um, and I mean, yeah, we do quite a lot of education about, you know, cooperative care. So teaching a chin rest so that we can actually, we, so one of my vets um, specializes in ophthalmology. So you know, looking into a pet's eyes can be a pretty threatening experience for, for especially a dog. Um, oh, yeah. so, right. So teaching them a chin rest so that they're comfortable if they're approached in that way. Um, you know, teaching them how to uh, take up certain positions. We did a really lovely video the other day about a fear-free neurology examination. Um, you know, actually putting the dog into certain positions through training that they can comfortably lie on their side so that the veterinarian can perform the spinal reflexes, all that sort of thing. So that's one way of doing it. And then the other thing that we do is we, we do use a lot of pre-visit medications. So pre-visit pharmaceuticals, which are event medications that are short acting, they're fast onset, they're short acting, and they are specifically for an event, a stressful event, like going to the veterinarian, going to the groomer, um, and that's something that, yeah, it's coming. I mean, slowly, I think there are more and more vets that are starting to understand the, the value of that, but it's like everything, it's going to take a little while to become common practice. Um, but yeah, we, 
I would say probably 60%, maybe even more of the patients we see receive pre-visit help in some way, shape or form. Yeah, because it's it's difficult. People don't understand that in those 20 minutes, you get actually a screenshot of the dogs. You're relying so much on the clients or the pet owners representation of what the problem is. There's a communication problem here telling you, oh, my dog did that sometimes misinterpreting the thing and lead lead you in a direction you have to be very careful how you how you translate that language and then you have the dog who doesn't show that problem in front of you because he's busy doing other stuff and on the other hand then you have to make a conclusion with this person actually being to follow through with it it's not just taking the medication some people struggling giving the dog's medication some people yeah. struggling to get the dog in the car some people are afraid to bring the dog to the vet who causes a whole series of abuse of not offering the dog medical care he needs yeah it's a vicious yeah, no, circle it is i mean we have we have a fear-free questionnaire that we send to each new client so if we have a new client that's coming to the clinic for the first time we send them a short questionnaire super easy to fill in online and it gives us a little bit of an idea as to what we need to do to help that animal how we can better prepare them whether that's giving the client instructions on how to um, enter the clinic, you know, even how to get them in the car or, you know, those kind of things. But you're right, it is a vicious cycle. And in particular, because very stressed animals go into this freeze type behavior, they'll either do fight, flight or freeze. None of them are particularly helpful if you're trying to examine them. But if they're frozen, that sometimes is a problem because it may lull the veterinarian into a false sense of security you know, the dog is fine, he's placid, he's, you know, not doing anything. But the mental and emotional state in that moment of freeze is still the same as if the dog were in a fight type mode. So we have to be so observant. And yeah, you're right, you know, and then sometimes it's, it's almost a question of, you know, we have to explain to the owner what's going on in that moment, your dog's frozen, you know, um, and, and sometimes conversely, it's actually the owner that doesn't want to have that help. You know, often we'll have owners say, just sit on him, just sit on him and give him the jab. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. And then we say, no, we're, we're not going to do that. Yeah, but don't get me started with that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, had, I had this experience the other day with a veterinarian and I have a dog who has severe trauma um, and he's a geriatric dog and Getting him to the vet was already a challenge, and I worked with him a long time for that. And I was there, everything ready to go. And we were discussing on how exactly, you know, what exactly we should do. And I'm seeing the veterinarian doesn't do anything. So the half hour passes, the hour passes, and we're still talking about stuff. And I was like, I'm here for the wound of my dog, and he's very reactive. So he's calm right now. Let's get it done. And so she didn't even have a, a person available to help us out. So she got somebody from the office and the whole thing blew off. I yeah. got, thank God, my dog into that state that I was able to get him back on the couch without any struggle. But he went in a survival response three times at the vet's office. And I had to get him back on the table without abuse or without, you know, struggling with him. Finally, after so much time, we were able to give him a sedation so we can treat his wound. He had an open you know, a cancer wound on his leg. But man, I was I was a mess after that. <laughs> yeah. I almost thought I'm gonna lose my dog in that vet clinic. Yeah. 
and yeah. that's very frustrating. So I wanted to share. Um, I have here a, an Amazon book that maybe you agree with. Um, let me share that a little bit here. Share the screen. Um, because I believe we should talk about a little bit about this preparing um, of cooperative care. So you guys in US and usually in England too, wherever you guys are, or even in Germany, you can go on Amazon and check for cooperative veterinary care. And there are, I think, two books out there that are very good. This is one of them. And read through it and start working with your dog before you need to go to the vet. So don't start when you need to go to the vet. Start before, like you have a puppy, you just adopted a dog. Start your training right away there. So that book is on my shelf in the clinic. Good, good. I'm going to share the link in the comments so people can have access to that too. So tell me a little bit about one of your weird behavior cases that you have to deal with. Um, I mean, we have we have many. So here in the UAE and in the region, in the Middle East in general, I'm the first veterinarian doing veterinary behavior medicine. So as you can imagine, um, I'm pretty busy. Um, and I see kind of the tip of the iceberg cases. Um, and by that, I mean, they're usually very complex. They're very um, difficult to work up. It's difficult to kind of get the full story. A lot of dogs here have you know, a rescue history or a shelter history. So we don't get a lot of early life um, history there. And I would say, uh, and I think this always kind of shocks people, I would say probably 70%, if not more, of my cases will have some kind of a physiological contributing factor to them. Um, I know this is a, a, dog, a dog chat, um, but I have had recently, actually in the last couple of weeks, a super interesting cat case. Can I share that? And then I've sure, got some sure. Yeah, yeah, okay. Sure. Just because this one is so, so, so interesting. Um, so it was a cat that was presented to me for peeing outside the litter box and on occasion pooping outside the litter box. So very common cat presentation. Um, and I do all my cat uh, behavior consults in the home because cats are difficult to assess in the clinic environment and because I want to see the environment, right? I want to see where everything is and how everything's set up. So um, I went to the client's home and the cat wasn't present. She was sleeping upstairs in a room somewhere and we talked through everything and it was kind of a weird presentation in that it wasn't sort of a classic urinating and defecating outside of the litter box case. And when I finally saw the cat so we went upstairs we looked around and I actually saw the cat I noticed that both of her eyes looked abnormal so she had very dilated pupils her right eye was um, bigger than the left eye um, and I just kind of that raised some red flags with me so we took her into the clinic and um, as I mentioned earlier one of my vets has a, a special interest in ophthalmology yep um, so we examined her and we actually found that she was non-visual. She couldn't see um, on both eyes. So she, yeah, so she had she a the box. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She couldn't see the box. Um, so, yeah, she ended up having um, a secondary, secondary infection in the eye, secondary to feline AIDS virus, uh, which is pretty common here in, in the UAE. Um, and she had glaucoma. So that's raised pressure within the eye. Um, so worse she had in the right. too. 
Exactly. She just felt awful. She felt awful. And I think a combination of she potentially couldn't see the box. She was unsure of her surroundings. She was probably a bit anxious due to the the non-vision. And she was painful, Mm. Um, you know, which brings us on to that topic that is pain. And I think she probably just toileted wherever was easiest and most comfortable for her. Convenience in that case. Exactly. Exactly. So that was, um, you know, that's a, definitely a true medical cause, I think, of probably a behavioral presentation. Um, and that might have been missed, you know, if that hadn't been looked at from through the veterinary lens, I think, at that time. Um, similarly, we had a Pomeranian um, who presented for behavior problems, again, was a, a recent rescue dog, fearful, as many small dogs are, of being touched, handled, picked up, all those kind of things. Um, and that dog, once we did some blood work, um, actually had a what we call a portosystemic shunt. So that's a, a liver condition where that really affects um, production development. Yeah, exactly. And it also affects the brain because the liver is is very sort of important in um, in that whole kind of roots kind of pathway and, and complex. So yeah, there are so many. And I would say, you know, a large degree or a large part certainly of reactive dogs that I see will have pain related issues. So I think a lot of dog dog problems um, have underlying pain and it's often chronic osteoarthritis, secondary to hip dysplasia or something like that. So pain is something that I almost always scan for now. Yeah, I, I totally I mean, I, I agree with you. It sounds weird. Um, I agree with you. Yeah, we are on the same page. Uh, I, I recognize from my perspective, I usually work with dogs that are a little bit heavier, um, guardian breeds, massive breeds, and also what we call like dominant breeds. I don't like the term, but um, usually um, can course some English Mastiffs, Bull Mastiffs, Great Pyrenees, guardian breeds. And one thing that I always... Uh, my, my question is very long. It takes about 20 minutes to fill it out. But I have all these questions, including nutritional question what are you feeding your dog how long is he on that food etc how many times do you feed one of the most common behavior problems i see with puppies is people don't feed healthy food and not enough portions per day number one and usually most of the behaviors like once we fix the food part that kind of sorts out which is biting chewing um, barking demanding and sometimes peeing and pooping some separation anxiety comes with that and on the other side when we look at the elder dogs we see also a pattern like low quality food like high carbs and bad quality nutrients causes other behaviors like inflammations and etc etc and i tell the people you know switch food make your dog feel healthy he has an immune disorder right now right okay the whole thing, the dog is not healthy. How can he feel good if he doesn't feel healthy? Yeah. And then we have a conflict because, unfortunately, U.S. is married with some couple of three or four, you know, nutritional companies like A, B, C, D. I don't even want, I hate to mention the names. And they're basically buying into it. And there's nothing worse than giving a dog who has underlying medical condition high-value carbs and sugars. And I just don't get it. Why is this acceptable? Yeah. It should be like out of the market. Those cookie cutter companies should not sell food to veterinarians. The veterinarian should kind of switch around that. 
It took me a hard time to find actually a, a brand is actually in Italy. They have their own, you know, program of studying and, and food nutritional uh, studies that is not connected to those big companies and much healthier. How do you how do you solve problems with food in the Emirates? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, and it's such a big topic, isn't it? And it's becoming so important both for humans and, you know, our pets. And, you know, the microbiome is a, a massive topic of research. And we know that by feeding some of these high, low value carb foods, we disrupt the microbiome, which leads to all kinds of problems, both um, gastrointestinal as well as behavioral. Um, so, I mean, I I do believe that there are some good brands that are providing, you know, nutritionally balanced, um, science-based um, diets. To be honest with you, and this is probably going to be slightly controversial, but the biggest problems I've seen here in the Emirates have been in dogs that are fed on raw food. Um, and that might be just the particular raw food supplier that we have here, but it I have seen a correlation, and this is just my personal experience. This is nowhere, by no means scientifically backed what I'm about to say. But um, a lot of aggressive cases, reactive cases, actually owner-directed bites have been, I've seen in dogs that have been fed on raw food. And mm. I wonder whether they're not nutritionally um, balanced enough. And I wonder whether they're missing some vital um, energy sources that actually feed mm. the brain. Um, yeah. One one thing that I notice is yes, um, there are basically the two main raw ideas. The one is the prey model, and the other one is the barf model. Um, I I recognize that, especially in the Middle East, I, I used to live there. The understanding of animals is kind of a little bit strange. They have a different perception of it. Like animals will not come in the house. Usually, they're outside, tied up. I think the more you go into the city the more you're in the culture centers, the more you will get pets and animals in the house, but usually not. Uh, but it's also a religious culture that has, doesn't have dogs in the house anyway. Um, one thing that I see with raw feeding is the misconception, what do we feed the dog? Then there is a lack of relationship established with before that. And so when people feeding food with such a high value and there is no secure attachment relationship involved with it, all of a sudden we have the dog feeling unsafe that this person that has no relationship may want to take my food away, which comes in together with early puppy trauma that is from the breeding practices. So all these things kind of bleed into the relationship in people when they start feeding high quality nutrients. Mm. That's what I saw on, on our side here, on our <laughs> continent part. And I saw it also in Greece. So the high value you feed, the less quality of relationship you have, the more you increase the behavior problems. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's an interesting take on it, actually. I haven't thought about it that way before. But yeah, I, I understand the, the, the thought process behind it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's an ongoing problem, I think. You know, and nutrition is such a big topic because we attach so much to it um you know there's yeah that whole thing around relationship of feeding of nurturing of guilt you know this massive obesity problem that we have with dogs that then predisposes to other medical problems that then predisposes to behavioral problems so it's kind of a vicious circle um, and i do think we're seeing more and more in terms of autoimmune and inflammatory factors affecting um, that and this disrupted microbiome that you know causes leaky gut problems and all that sort of thing and stress plays a big part in that as well so it's a 
to me, that's a very vicious yeah. circle of, of... And, and I like that you're looking into that concept because I see very often we have, we have a thyroid problem in dogs in general. A, because of the low quality nutrients that we get, the low quality ingredients the dogs get from food, plus, you know, medical treatments like vaccinations can cause autoimmune disorders. But also one other thing that comes into the equation is that healthy lifestyle also affects the dog. And so all this combination makes it such a vulnerable situation. And especially for a, for a dog, for a species that actually is easily hangry, like food, <laughs> right? So if a dog has any medical or is hungry or any digestive system problem, the dog naturally goes into survival mode. Yeah. So if he has an ulcer, survival mode. He has a belly ache, survival mode. He's hungry, survival mode. So it's likely to get kind of uh, an aggressive behavior out of this kind of little issues, and especially around um, not having enough probiotics and prebiotics in the digestive system or have leaky guts, for example. And the whole thing ends up the dog having allergies and doesn't feel comfortable and acid reflex and bad quality nutrients. It's just the whole mess goes on. How many yeah. cases do you work like in, in in your praxis? So I see probably um I would say about 10 to 12 new cases per month. Um and then I see um obviously lots and lots of follow-ups. Sometimes I'll sometimes it can be more. It it depends a little bit on whether I'm, you know off doing further training or that sort of thing. So for my residency, I have to see 300 cases for the European college and I have to see 400 cases for the American college before I can be eligible to sit my board exams. And I've just, just last week, um, seen my 300th case. So yeah, <coughs> I've seen, yeah, oh, exactly. Great. I've seen 300 and, and something now cases in total, but I would say on average, I see probably about 10 to 12 new cases per month. And the new cases are, they take time, right? They, I mean, the consultate, the preparation takes a long time, the questionnaire, the looking at videos, then the consultation itself is minimum of two hours. And then, you know, report writing. Um, yeah. So it's, it's quite a big, each case is, looked at really thoroughly, um, you know, potentially um, medical workups if necessary. So each case is, yeah, I, it's would be difficult to see more than probably 12 new ones in a month with all yeah, that yeah, work. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's a lot of work. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I have about a week with three to four new clients, like with behavior issues. Um, of course, I don't have this medical package today attached to it but um one one thing that i see very often is misinterpretation and bias from the client's perspective what the dog actually does the first thing is my dog is aggressive is going to kill my family my dog killed the cat is going to kill my kids or my my dog beat another child now we're going to lose the house all these extreme cases and Unfortunately, the social media is not very helpful here because everybody's going to go online and says share his problems and all these people kind of like Karen's and John's and Mary's would kind of talk about all these informations and all this unprofessional advice without even knowing a background. Yeah. People don't see that you know, doing a behavior evaluation, it takes a long time to get in the dog's mind because the dog's 
has a thought, feels a certain way to offer a specific behavior that we have a problem with, and we don't understand what the dog is thinking and why he's thinking that way, would not be able to put together a treatment plan. Right. right? And, and also, sorry, go on. Go no, I was going to say, and I think one of the things that, that is really important is that we make sure that we treat each dog as an individual. I think sometimes, you know, it's very easy to label aggressive dog, reactive dog, you know, separation anxiety dog, whatever it might be, um, because there are so many variables within that that we have to be really careful to, you know, really look at each individual dog both medically, physiologically, what is their nervous system up to? Um, what is their motivation? What is their background? What do they have previous trauma? You know, what is their pre there are so many factors that go into looking at each individual case and and animal um, that it and I think that's where it starts to become a little dangerous when people my dog's an aggressive dog and you know getting to the point where we actually start to unpick that and look at you know, in which situations, what's motivating that, you know, all that sort of thing. That's, to me, is really, really important. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> such a, I'm kind of, I, I like talking to you because we're, we're on the same page and going with the same problems. And um, it's so sad that people just not aware of that. And people don't know how to, th there is no system that navigates them through this chaos of what to do first and um i've I've a couple of cases in the past with usually dogs who are bigger and big mouth and big bites um i'm telling you okay you want to go to the vet with a dog who's aggressive to strangers how would you think is going to work out for you what do you think the veterinarian will be able to do to your dog yeah would you be able to bring your dog into the vet's office with all these dogs in the and you eventually sign the paper while your dog is barking and killing other dogs in the environment how about you bring your vet in the house Oh, right. I didn't think of that, right? And then how about we find a good vet who actually knows what to do? Because just coming to your house doesn't solve the problem. You actually have to work with your dog. Right. And and be able to prep your dog coming in for a visit, you know, talk a couple of times. It's just just come and fix it and go. You need the preparation time, especially for your dog. And how about your dog? Is he comfortable wearing a muzzle? Has he been prepared wearing a muzzle? Do you know how to feed your dog medication? The vet will come give you a bottle of medication to prescribe. And how do you give those medications? Open his mouth and stuck it in there? <laughs> no. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and, and these are so basic things that are not being taught. And yeah. in the US, we have this idea of, you know, adopt and shop, which is great. But the people shop from rescues and shop from backyard breeders and shop their dogs without having any proper education. Yeah. So they're having an animal in the house that easily for living can kill and we don't have tools. And then we see also veterinarians who deal with that all day long don't have proper tools to address behavior issues. Yeah. This this behavior approaches are outdated, choking the dog down on the floor and putting the dog into a into a helplessness stage. Like no, it's kind of like it's being talked in school. Abuse is talked in school. It's crazy. Yeah, no, I agree. But that I think is that where the point comes that it's so important for our collaborative or for our respective professions to collaborate. Um, 
because you know i think one of the big problems is is that veterinarians globally at the moment are overstretched there are not enough vets um you know covid hasn't helped vets are busy sometimes they don't accept new patients you know sometimes they can't even see emergencies so asking a vet to you know come to the house twice to prepare for a visit might not be realistic however you you know trainers can or other pet care professionals that's where you know they can kind of come in influence help prepare be a massive part of that dog's experience of that either veterinary visit or you know home visit vet coming to the home and i think that's where we're struggling a little bit at the moment because we haven't reached that point yet where vets are comfortable to collaborate um you know to have maybe a veterinary behaviorist a general practitioner vet and a trainer all part of that animal's care package and they all work together to strive to the same goal which is preparing having good experiences not having you know nasty techniques and practices used or outdated i should say um and that's i think you know which is why it's so great you know that we're able to have these conversations that you know trainers and vets and you, you know that we're able to start talking about these things together because we all play a part in this i think yeah it's so sad um one thing that i also see very often is people cannot afford that system yeah how can we make that system affordable now my first question was how is it possible um to offer tele-support from a veterinary perspective does my dog always have to go to the vet to be seen and treated can we kind of filter out the things that the vet doesn't have to see the dog and then minimize those consumptions of vulnerable time into more substantial work yeah i think that's, that's a really yeah, I, so one of the things that's happening in the UK at the moment, and I hope it's going to kind of take off a little bit around the world, is that we're using veterinary nurses to almost go out into the community to sort of do what a, a human community nurse would do to, you know, maybe assess, do some things that the vet doesn't have to do, like giving antiparasite medication or, you know, whatever it might be, tending to a wound, whatever it, it is that veterinary nurses are allowed to do in each respective country. So that would be one thing that we're able to almost triage in the home. Um, and that's something that actually my nursing team, we're working on to see if we can't start implementing something like that. Um, also, the other thing that I believe is happening is that Fear Free are um, launching a pet owner education program, which is almost, and that's pretty affordable, um, which is almost, you know how we always say that before a person gets a dog, they should have like a basic training course on getting a dog. I'll and send I think, you a link. <laughs> <laughs> okay, perfect. Um, so those types of things, you know, where, that doesn't involve you know, a care team of three professionals, which may be cost prohibitive, but, you know, getting people to really engage in these kind of um, online courses that aren't cost prohibitive, that they can get the basic information, mm. if, preferably before they get the dog um, in an ideal world. Yeah, I actually work on that as we speak, actually, this week, working on a program that is actually to a fourth grade level, like the language is very simple it's not very you know intellectual and very scientific for people to learn 
basic parenting skills that saves them yeah. of most of the medical conditions. For example, my dog has an ear infection. How do you recognize an ear infection? How do you yeah. see your dog is itchy? What can you do about that? Self-help. Okay? Yeah. And gives you more time to arrange things. You cannot wait until the dog is passing out to call the vet and then wait for three months to see them. And then you get upset and the vet get upset and the dog is going to die in between. But rather being proactive and active rather than reactive. Because in US, at least, all the veterinary care is reactive. Yeah. There's no proactive care. We don't know how to feed our dogs. We don't know how to prepare our dogs. We don't know how to do simple things like taking my dog for a wash. No, we have to have the groomer because only the groomer can wash the dog and only the groomer can put the nails. So we have all these specialties, but parenting is the specialty we need to know. We don't know about that. Yeah. And I know I mean parenting with the concept of understanding and complying with the dog's needs, the hierarchy of needs, the basic needs, putting the dog in a crate without the water, that's lack of basic needs, mm. right? Or not taking the dog for a walk because it's raining outside. So the dog has to poop in the house, mm. like all these little things that happen, right? And not knowing how to find a proper healthy cat litter mm -hmm. and recognizing that the cat litter does make a huge impact on a cat in the location where you put right. the cat litter, right? Or if you work with horses, well, too small of a stable and not proper care and not socializing with your horses will cause behavior issues. Yeah. And yeah. all these things come down, people have no clue. They love having pets because it's kind of like a prestige thing, but they don't know how to care for them. And of course, yeah. the less you know about things, the more expensive it gets. You <laughs> cannot have a pet without having $1,000 on your bank account cash because yeah. in us vet care if you don't have to pay down 500 dollars, you're not getting treatment yeah which means your dog is dying you don't have credit score you don't get treatment your dog yeah. is dying just simply as that or you surrender your dog that's yeah. the option yeah. which affects many people homeless elderly people yes financial crisis around pets is very high after COVID, and i think in emirate even though we think they're, you know, everybody's swimming in money. It's not. It's it's a global crisis. How much money you have available for these necessary things? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So it seems like we had all the questions answered. There is no questions that people have to say. I'm I'm not seeing anything here, or my system doesn't work. But if you guys have any questions, um, Catherine and I will happy to answer. If you guys have any questions, please include your dog's age, breed, sex, so we understand a little bit of a background, what's going on. And maybe you want to have a little bit of a short question and stay tuned to hear the answer, okay? We can only answer questions, of course, that are coming in life. And um, yeah, do you have a funny story, Katrin, about dog behavior? <laughs> a funny story? Uh I don't know so much funny stories. I think most of my behavior case, well, I have a lot of funny stories in terms of um, being here in the Emirates. Um, and obviously the Emirates, I mean, it's a wonderful country. I absolutely adore living here, but it's a very young country. And pet ownership is something that is, you know, quite new to a lot of, in particular, local um, Emirati people who live here. Um, so I have had um, behavior questions or people coming in to say that their cats aren't breathing well, they're breathing funny. And when we talked about it, 
the cat was actually purring. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it was kind of an emergency that turned out to be a purring emergency. So um, little so, basic things. Yeah, so those are those are, are a kind of, I guess, some funny stories. But I have a lot of heartwarming stories, I think. Um, you know, for me, I think the, the most heartwarming stories are when the pet parent finally gets it, you know, when you hear that penny drop almost. <laughs> oh so you mean they're scared and you're like exactly and we shouldn't be doing this exactly um and you know and it's nice to be able to provide sometimes some pretty quick wins just by owner education um and the, the owners just love it you know when you hear of course you get some that are a little bit resistant and that you know don't want to hear what you're saying but um, I find so many of my clients, you know, that moment when they're just like, oh, my God, okay, I, I understand now. Um, so there are a lot of heartwarming stories, I feel, that that I love. And we've had some, um, you know, patients that have been with me for a long time, 18 months, two years, and we're finally starting to see big changes happening. And, you know, you kind of think, oh, my goodness, it was all worth it, you know, all the hard work and the kind of perseverance. Um, yeah, I like, you... I like that you're doing pioneer work there. Oh, it's important that people don't see that. Yeah. What was your question? I was going to say, do you have any funny stories? <laughs> I have, I have sad funny. I'm, I'm usually a dead end situations. People like went through different trainers and tried everything, nothing worked, and then somebody told them like, before you kill your dog, call Roman. And yeah. Usually that comes with some sad funny stories for example somebody wanted basically to euthanize their mastiff because he was aggressive to whoever came into the house and so they filled up the questionnaire and blah 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 and put their dog's name in it and usually having brackets also the other dog's names that are come so i can see how many dogs are in there and they didn't put anything there other than the mastiff and a boxer and then when we have the conversation and um i was calling somebody to knock at the door so we can see the behavior all of a sudden i hear the third dog barking and like who's that and everybody's like who like there was a barking before the other guys barked oh that's jeff he's deaf <laughs> and he's blind and he's in another room and i said wait a minute so he barks too like yeah all the time great how about we take Jeff out of the equation and knock at the door and see what's happening? Nothing happened. Yeah. So basically the definite blind dog told everybody they're going to get killed because he, he felt somebody's walking up the staircase yeah. and told everybody he's going to get killed and everybody went in a survival mode and they almost killed a dog for no reason. Yeah. So addressing the little guy and getting more comfortable hearing the sounds of a staircase and feeling the vibration of the floor is not something that's going to kill us, help the whole family kind of find the balance and not putting a dog down. Yeah. <laughs> it was just I like a, a 20 minute freaking session and save the dog's life. It kind of doesn't yeah. make sense sometimes. Um, and that's, I think that's the, the piece, you know, that I was saying we have to treat each case and each dog as an individual because, you know, if, if all we hear is that dog is reactive and it's aggressive and then, yeah, you know, that's where our mind takes us. Well, okay, you know, as a massive, a dangerous dog potentially, yeah. So it, unpicking that is almost like detective work. I always say to my colleagues, behavior medicine 
veterinary behavior medicine for me it's the creme de la creme of the cases i've been a vet for over 20 years now i've seen almost everything you can see in in general practice and these cases are the ones that you can make so much difference you know especially if you take the time to investigate and to look at the the animal holistically um so i love those and i actually feel that all of us in this field are doing pioneer work you know in the last years i think this yeah. there's this kind of new very <laughs> yeah, it's a new era of of how we think about dogs and how we think about dog training and how we think about behavior it's it's changing and i think it has to change and i think that's what i think we're all of us are pioneering that path a little bit i appreciate you for going that route because even though you're not the main veterinarians in abu dhabi right mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. um it's, it's very important to recognize it's it's hard work as a woman in the field in these particular countries beside other factors it's it's not a privilege sometimes so you have to work through so many barriers and it's not and i think being a, a, a woman in veterinary field it gets a lot of other competitions that we don't see as clients and there's a lot of friction out there um but also you going into that field and go beyond what you classically learned in in, in med medical school and say there's something out there that i haven't touched yet and something out there that can make an impact something that can help my relationship with my clients to improve the whole thing well that's that's pioneer work because you go down a path that nobody else have walked yet and you open up a niche a niche in a country open up a completely new field for animals to be treated well, not only just in a medical um, office, but also at home by educating those people. I remember yeah. when I was starting, you know, uh, in 2007 and start talking about energy and, um, you know, and, and healing and trauma and people are like, you're crazy, you're nuts. Dogs don't have emotions. And what do you think food? Just give them something to eat. That's fine. And I had to struggle with my own colleagues around that. And mm. I was not working online back then with Skype and people like, you cannot help people online. You have to be in person, evaluate the dog and you know, you have to correct and punish the dog. How would you do that online? Until you change the mindset and says, people have the power. You have to give the parent, the parenting power and the knowledge and education to assess the situation. You have to give them those tools. Yeah. And once they have those tools, then they do what they know best, parenting. Because they yeah. parent the kids. They know how to parent the dogs if we create that translation language, that modulator that helps them understand that I'm not feeding two legs, I'm feeding four legs, and I'm not feeding a child, I'm feeding a carnivore, or um, let's call it a carnivore from a category. And I need to be very careful how I approach my body language, my intentions. Those animals are highly intelligent. They're emotional intelligence. They know how you feel and you cannot fake it. And if you ask a question, meaning is you don't know the answer and then you wonder why your dog is not following through. And if you're not giving your dog his personal needs, then he will make those needs happen, which is usually against what you think is right. Yeah. And then punishing a dog for making that choice to make something right because you don't like it doesn't make it okay either. 
Yeah. Like just yeah. because your dog jumped on the bed and you grab him by the collar and pull him off because it's your bed, you're reactive. Your behavior is more aggressive than a dog being on your bed. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. The funny thing that I found with a lot of clients is that if they've come from a kind of a punishment background, if you like, a lot of them tell me it didn't feel right. Like instinctively, it it didn't feel right what we were doing, but we were told by a professional to do that and we trusted that professional. And a lot of a lot of times, you know, I, I hear that so often, giving them the permission to actually parent, you know, as, as you put it, their dogs without having this whole rubbish about alpha and dominance and this and that and the next thing. It it actually is more instinctively correct or people feel that's how it should be, but they've been told they have to do it a different way. Um, and so that's what they've been doing. So often I find giving them the permission to, yeah, your dog can sleep in your bed, it's fine. If that's the boundaries that you want to set for your mm -hmm. dog, if you don't, then don't, but then you have to be consistent with what you don't want your dog to do. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, with the same problem Jeff has, for example, with his family, trying to explain to them that dogs are family <laughs> and they need a relationship. So just give you, Jeff, heads up what you can explain to your family. The dogs counter the belief system. There, there are dominance and they fight for their lives with each other. And this is all this competition going on. No, dogs are social beings and they live in family structures, usually matriarchic guided. And so the parents, which from a breeding perspective, we call them breeding pair or alpha breeding pair, they organize the family, okay? So they organize the offspring. And so the first generation observes this, no, the second, hold on a second, the hierarchy is wrong. So the firstborn observes the secondborn, how he's being parented and learns from it. So there's a lot of education going on in this first couple of one year of 16 months of a dog's living in a family. But if we take the dog away from that family, bring it in our family, the dog still needs a relationship. So building a secure attachment relationship means the dog feels safe and feels protected and feels guided and feels informed and feels cared for from his family that is what makes the dog becoming a family dog now especially if a great pyrenees a guardian breeds we're all over the world in different names of their categories of breeds their specialty is to distinct between family and non-family so family is what they grow up with and see around them all the time and everything outside of there is non-family which is strangers so a good guardian breed makes that distinction. They are not family, they are danger. And they will not change that idea until that particular danger is confirmed to be family. And one other thing that happens if you take in a dog that is already old enough, six years old, into your new family, you're not automatically family just because you adopted a dog. That dog, his whole family, he's grieving about because he just lost it. And just because he was good with goats and sheep and cats and dogs doesn't mean he's fine with you because in that new environment, they're strangers. Everything is not family. So feeling abducted, basically. So in order to fix that, you have to create a secure attachment relationship first with your dog and put them together into feeling safe with you. And you will be able to guide him and introduce him this new family environment. Slowly, slowly. Sometimes, and... Um, 
our guest today can confirm it, sometimes you have to have medical support because we don't know what the dog has been there in the past and what he has been through. So of course you have to go to a veterinarian like Catherine and fear-free veterinarian to go through this medical history and see, do we have any problems coming up? And I give here the word to Catherine to finish up here. Yeah, I think especially in a large breed dog, you know, that's very important. Um, um, and, you know, evaluating the dog's mental and emotional health as well as their physical health. That's kind of the the, the foundation, I would say, um, you know, to, to make sure that they are feeling physically comfortable and that then can hopefully translate into mental and emotional comfort. Um, the For me, it's really important that the relationship piece that uh, Roman mentioned, that's very important and the feeling of safety and security. So those are the, the important things. And if we think about the Maslow's um, pyramid of hierarchies, um, it's not until you have the foundation of safety and security in place that you can then expect a dog to perform Things like play, self-expressive behavior. Hey, there we go. So, <laughs> just I, like I hope Lin, Lin, Linda Michaels watch it because we're we're dear friends <laughs> and colleagues. Okay, uh, but perfect, exactly. So you want to create that foundational piece of safety and security, and then you know the dog will feel more and more comfortable to do the things like playing, expressing themselves. Um, you know all those things that then actually make the dog fun to have as a family dog. Um, so yeah, I agree. Safety, security, foundation. Yeah. We need more Catherines. <laughs> okay? We need a cl clone thing. <laughs> but I, I, I like I like that you work uh, you work remotely too, right? With with um, yeah. people. Yeah. That's good. So I can refer people to you. Yay! Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I work a lot with with rescues, national rescues. I work with four national rescues two of three of them are um, national great pyrenees rescues kind of um, and uh, mastiff rescues and all of them have all these common problems people don't listen they, they listen to the wrong thing it's like they just turn a blind ear on on good quality information and then they listen to bad information and i was wondering why is it is it kind of like did anybody do a study why people listening to wrong information more likely than to good information is it a language that we speak wrong what do you think yeah it's an interesting question i mean i think the wrong information is marketed very cleverly um, and unfortunately the wrong information is very popular in the kind of bigger media um, so that's the first piece um, maybe the second piece is that we sometimes use language that isn't that accessible. Um, yeah, maybe. But I think that the marketing piece, I had something else in my mind and it's just gone. There was something else I wanted to say. Why do people listen to bad information? Oh, yes. Um, so the, I think there is, I don't know whether there was actually research that was done, but what we talk about quite a lot in our sort of veterinary behavior community is that punishment is actually quite reinforcing for the punisher. And, you know, and it's kind of seems or feels in the short term an easier and quicker solution to a problem than changing your mindset and looking at things slightly differently. Um, and I think, yeah, there is something reinforcing for punishers about punishment. So I think that might be a combination of things. Yeah, I feel I feel you're totally right here because I'm struggling with the same thing and having conversation with people because I, I'm, I'm an ex shock collar user and. I'm not proud of it, but it's something I, I had to go through my career because that I was I was 
brainwashed to believe that that's the way to go in the beginning and change my mind about that. It takes a lot to kind of say, I'm sorry, and I screwed up and I have to change that. But I see that easy take of making the client person feel good about the dog's behavior instead of making the dog feel good about his behavior. Yeah. It's an easy fix. And the problem comes in here as well that those people who made mistake have hard time accepting it. So yeah. they're automatically going into denial because I'm not hurting my dog and yeah. the story stops there. But yes, yeah. you did. Well, I'm just pushing a button. The dog likes to go outside. Okay. My veterinarian just drags him on the back on a choke collar and he gets his blood work done. No problem, right? <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, for you, but the dog doesn't. And and we don't see how these things are interconnected. And we don't see how it's being perpetuated. I don't understand why a veterinarian can have in his folder, in his referral folder, people who use shock collars and prong collars. Even if the veterinary community, veterinary behavior community says no to shock collars and prong collars. Why? Because they're unhealthy. Yeah. Because they're causing all these problems. They can measure those problems. You can actually do blood work and see how stressed the dog is just wearing one. Yeah. Yeah. And it just ends up in a dead end. It's like, that doesn't exist. Show me proof. And you give him a list of 26 scientific papers of proof. And like, they don't know what to do because they don't apply it the correct way. Yeah. 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 <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah. So, yeah. It's like, oh, you didn't kill him the right way. That's why he died. <laughs> it's frustrating. I know it can be really frustrating. But I, the way I think about it is, you know, changing things one dog at a time that's you know if i think about oh my god all of the dogs and everything that we have to do can feel a little bit overwhelming but i think you know having conversations like this um spreading the word and then essentially changing you know one dog at a time's life um is you know is something that i think about a lot you know i made a difference for this dog um this family you know, whatever it might be, and hoping that they will pass on that philosophy to others as well. Um, so yeah, it's it can be frustrating and overwhelming, I know. Catherine, you're inspiration to other veterinarians. So while you're thinking you're doing this one dog at a time, I'm saying you're affecting what veterinarian at a time, and at the same time, this veterinarian multiplies what you're doing. So we have to literally help other colleagues coming to the same mindset do what i do and it worked yeah sometimes we don't make money out of it okay yeah. but we shouldn't be afraid of that because we have our niche yeah okay? absolutely and you know sometimes it's frustrating if you see all these same cases coming back in again and you have a burnout i have a burnout i'm i'm sure you have burnout too you you have medical bills you have a you have stuff to pay you have medical costs coming in you have machines that you have to pay all these costs coming in I'm, I'm sure you're going to bed at night and says, man, what else do we have to pay tomorrow? How do we get this together? Right. Beside those cases that, and you need to kind of, at some point be also a, a woman, a mother, a person to shut it off and says, I want to have a glass of wine, but no, we have to think about tomorrow's case. <laughs> right. And you know, the email that just came in and the, and, and the chat on Facebook that just being tagged on. Yeah. And sometimes we have to be very harsh about things. No, I'm not answering that question now. No, I'm going tomorrow. So I, I, 
I see and, and I appreciate you taking the time today and sharing that. And I was very hesitant in the beginning because sometimes veterinarians that I try to get on, on, on the show today are kind of a little bit, not I wouldn't say arrogant, but I would say I'm not dealing with trainers. Yeah. I'm not dealing with holistic behaviorists, behavior consultants. They're just crap. And they just open up to that option which is a big field. Yeah, sometimes you're adding energy work to a behavior case and being able to do a remote treatment on a dog and counter treat pain. It's already scientific evidence that doing um, quantum field work works a little bit of a little bit, right? Um, placebo work. Sometimes talking to a person calm will affect the dog's behavior as well. Sometimes doing energy work and I know it sounds weird doing Reiki in a crate will make the dog feel better in the crate or the leash or the environment. Or I have treated work where I had to go to a shelter and the dog was not being able to be open the gate to get in. I was able to do a treatment before I arrived there and the dog was actually pretty calm arriving there. So opening up the things that we cannot prove scientifically, but it obviously works for some reason and it doesn't have any side effects. Why not thinking about it or at least including somebody who does that? I know, right. for example, reconnecting feeling my wife specializes in that. And and I had personal experience of doing reconnective feeling work with my trauma situation. I have a complex PTSD trauma and working with people and dogs who have similar issues and behaviors and pains. She would be able to do a healing session on a dog post or pre-surgery and make the dog easier going through that process. It's just preparation for it. Insurance is paying for it already to get the clients faster out of the hospital. So if the insurance pay for it, there must be something behind that. And you know how insurances are. They're not paying for nothing. <laughs> um, and I also appreciate that you are also open to these options. And beside this, you know, classic Western, and we see also doing water therapy and, and food therapy and all these things, we, we have to see that kind of from a holistic perspective not just aromatherapy. I'm not talking aromatherapy and juju stuff, just literally holistic approach, seeing everything that affects my dog are environmental factors. And I need to understand the entire spectrum of these environmental factors, including the vet visit and including how the client brings the dog to the vet and his fears and worries bring the dog to the vet also affect the dog. And you have to treat that. Right. Yeah. No, it's, I think it's so important that we remain open. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, it's obviously I'm a veterinarian, I'm science trained. So sometimes my brain, you know, no. keeps me on that track. <laughs> but I think it's important. And, you know, and the, the more I do behavior work, the more I see that, um, you know, what works for one dog might not work for another. So you have to have this really big toolbox. And I think that big toolbox needs to include, um, you know, alternative approaches as well. So, yeah, I, I think this is a, such an interesting field and it's it's evolving. And, you know, I'm excited to see what the next 10 years bring to be. Yeah. Just I love the fact that you have um, a person with optinologist, opt right? Um, yeah. My first experience with parascience was meeting a person who is an ideologist. Yeah. And I was seven and my father went to an ideologist and he was sitting on the, on a table and that doctor was telling him exactly what happened in his life through his eyes. And I was like, yeah. 
how is this possible? Well, guess what? I bought a couple of books and looked into that. And every time I deal with a client in person, I have a just little look in their eyes or take a picture of their eyes and, hmm, hmm okay, let's get the person as quickly as possible to the vet, get things started. And of course, I'm not an ophthalmologist and I'm not an iridologist, but it gives me a tool to identify there's something going on that I technically isn't happening yet, but it's about to happen. Yeah. And if a dog has eyes to see out of there and other dogs look into it, there must be something in there to exchange. Yeah. Yeah, and for I sure. That's... Yeah, I, I have some experience with iridology in horses, not me doing it personally, but I've seen it being done. Um, I haven't seen it being done in dogs, but yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I think there are, I, my, I myself actually um, am a great fan of Ayurveda and Ayurvedic um, medicine. I've seen that help me a lot. So I have to be open. Otherwise, you know, I, it would be very um, hypocritical of me to say, oh yeah, I use Ayurvedic medicine for myself, but I don't, I'm not open to those things for our pets. So um, yeah. Thank you so much for today. It was really a pleasure. And even if we didn't speak a word German, and I thank you for not pushing me in that direction because I sound worse than Schwarzenegger. Um, I haven't spoken German since 92. I left Austria. Um, but I think we had a, with a great conversation and I think people got a lot out of it. And I know some people don't like to text a lot. They kind of stay incognito. But um, I, we have a good feedback having like many people sitting here for a long time um, chatting with us so thank you so much for that um yeah let's keep the communication channels open yeah um, sure. and um maybe we can have another chat another round maybe with a another weird case to chat about <laughs> um and yeah um if in in the comments um you will see i posted um Catherine's facebook group Okay, and her website, so you guys can check it out. And I'm looking forward to hear back from you at some point. And any questions, please uh, put in the comments. If I see something that's directed to Catherine, I will tag her, so she will know about your comments. Thanks a lot, and have a great rest of your evening. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Thank you.